0: Well you're probably a lot like me in that uh, you don't think of authority as that which is uh, your greatest friend. We don't like authority. No one really does at all. No one likes the authority that uh, as a married person as a married man that the wife has over her husband. No one likes the authority that the husband have, has over the body of the wife. No one likes the authority of the state. No one likes the authority of the church. And especially no one likes new authority. You know, you think of a, someone on a, on a team that they don't like the authority of the coach and so they fire the coach and they bring in a new coach, thinking this is going to be better, but the coach still has authority. and They especially don't like the new ideas, the, the new boss that comes in with different ideas, the, the new coach. Frankly, this is probably one of the reasons why uh, young seminary graduates have such a short tenure at churches. They don't like new authority. Lest we blame it on the 1960s, this isn't anything new on human history. Indeed, the history of the whole world really cannot be understood uh, unless we look at it through the lens of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against The Lord. This theme of authority, if you just uh, took the theme of authority and the human response to it, and if you took that theme and you looked at the Bible just through the lens of that theme from the left cover of your Bible to the right, you would see clearly that at the center of the gospel is man's pride confronted by the authority of God the Father. Through Christ. Authority. There's, there's not a, a bone in human flesh. That naturally tends towards submission to authority. The sin that, that is in the very marrow of our bones. From birth. From even conception. Shuns and rejects authority. Indeed it really is only by God's grace. Through saving faith in Christ. That one can come to not only see authority as a means of grace but even have the desire to submit to it. We find ourselves here in the book of Mark, in the final week, and some would think even in the final three days of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, with this confrontation of authority. You'll probably remember some years ago, uh, there was a TV show, uh, a crime show, that shot the entire show in in real-time narration. The show was an hour long, and it depicted an hour of that person's life. 60 minutes in that 60-minute 60, that 60 show would be 60 minutes in the person's life. An actual hour of the character of life. So if you watch the show, there's no, there's no time lapses where there's jumps in periods of time. There's no slow motion. Everything's in real-time narration. But in a sense that would produce a sort of race-against-the-clock type feel for the audience. The pressure's all on. You've got to get it done in that 60 minutes. And you get the same sort of feeling here at the end of Mark 11, all the way through the chapter 16. The time span is really only a few days, but you're zeroed in with mounting tension and even intensity On these passages, every single passage from here, Mark 12 through 16, seems to grow in its mounting pressure. Two points this morning. They're pretty easy to see in your Bible, especially if you're using the Pew Bible, page 848. Uh, You see the first, the the final few verses in chapter 11. That will be our first point, looking at 27 through 33. And the second will be chapter 12, 1 through 12. Let me be clear. You're taking notes this morning, the argument that I'm seeking to make from the text. The text, I believe, is arguing for the truth that the authority of the Beloved Son, capital S, requires full allegiance. The authority of the Beloved Son requires full allegiance. Look with me at chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. We remember by context in uh, chapter 11, verse 20, they were on their way to Jerusalem. They were going in and out of the city. Here they are coming again to Jerusalem and they walk into the temple, the temple that Christ has just cleansed of all those who were using it improperly. So you can imagine Christ walking into the temple again on this morning and probably not met with smiles. Oh we love you. You're the teacher we've all looked for. There's a lot of tension here. And there's this question of authority. That is my first point, a question of authority, a question of authority. And who's the authority on the street as it were? Well, the authority on the street is these priests, scribes and elders. You see that in verse 27. And if you've been with us any period of time in the study of Mark, uh, we have met these men many times over. They've been accro- opposing Christ all along, almost from chapter 1. They've been in opposition against Christ. And, and as each chapter unfolds, the pressure has been building against Christ. And so they come to Christ with a question. You see the question there in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? The authority of of cleansing the temple. By what authority are you healing? By what authority are you teaching? This word authority has been a common theme throughout the book of Mark. Just turn with me back quickly to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. You'll see there, right away, beginning of the ministry of Christ, beginning of the teaching ministry. Verse 22, he goes... Into Capernaum, on the Sabbath, he's teaching in the synagogue, in the temple, 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Move in your Bible to your right, chapter 3, verse 15. Christ sending out the twelve apostles said that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have, through him, authority to cast out demons. Chapter 4, verse 41. So they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? By implication, who has such authority that even creation will bow? Chapter 8. Verse 34. Notice the authority of Christ here demanding allegiance that we see in 34. He called to them the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, notice the authority, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The authority of Christ to such an extent that it demands full allegiance. Now here, back in Mark 11, the chief priests, scribes, and elders asking this question, at the heart of their question, is pride? Is there envy? Wanting to know, we're the educated. We're the ones who, have, who run this temple. We're the religious leaders. We're the ones people have looked to for so many years. Who are you, a mere carpenter's son, that says these things and can do these things? Where's your credentials? And you see the pressure of the people turning from them and turning to Christ and them wanting in their pride thinking, well, let's just ask him the question. Let's just ask him where he got his degree from. Let's point it out to everybody who really has the wisdom. Christ doesn't answer their question right away. He asks them a question. Verse 29 Okay, I'll ask you one question, you answer me, and notice there his even authority calling for them to answer him, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I think it might have been a, an interesting time to be there around that scene, hearing this whole interaction. The question that Christ is asking really is revealing their understanding of his authority. Now, why do I say that? Because, you'll notice, keep going down a little bit, verse 32, they all held that John really was a prophet. Now, we can go just, uh, if we needed to, quickly to chapter 1. We're not going to go there. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And we know that John the Baptist, in coming, says, I'm a messenger to proclaim to the nations, to the people of this one that's to come after me. So John himself, by his own authority as a prophet, is saying, the one that comes after me has all authority. They recognize John's authority as a prophet. Therefore, they recognize John's authority as a prophet. says, Christ has authority. And you see this little interaction here. I, I, I really wondered, as I was studying the passage... How did Peter overhear this? Because you sort of get this picture of, hey, that's a good question. We're going to go have a little unholy huddle over here and figure that out. And they sort of gather around and they say, okay, listen, if we say this, let's start with what we know. If we say it's from heaven, then he's going to ask us, why don't we believe him? Okay, we can't say that. Right, got it. Don't go that way. All right? All right, what about if we say it's from man? If we say it from man, We know all the people are really going to turn against us now. You see, the the question of Christ pointed out uh, by their first suggested answer here, it points out their envy. We can't say it's from heaven. And the second suggests that they are people of pride. They're going to turn away from us. And so what do they do? I think it's one of the most pathetic responses in all of Scripture. They know the authority of Christ and they turn away from it. And what do they do? They lie. We do not know. They knew. They knew clearly. Brothers and sisters, this demands, this passage demands our clearest attention. It demands that we, we look and observe and recognize this morning that one can, can look full in the physical face of Jesus Christ, knowing his actions of healing and teaching and authority and goodness and love and reject Him. It demands that we recognize that unless a heart has been moved by God, there is no salvation in man at all. The people could stare at Christ, three feet away maybe, knowing His authority, and yet reject Him. The authority of Christ in, in, in the face of these people's pride and even the face of our pride. And I wonder by application this morning, what do we consider? What do we consider our authority that is bumping up against the authority of Christ? You know, the world would say, listen, we, we've got a doctorate upon doctorate upon doctorate of, of, of all these different things we can study. The, the, the authority of academia God is is not something you should believe in because we have the authority of academia. Or even for, for us, maybe, that are not as educated as maybe some of the world, and yet we say, we have the authority of experience. And we turn away from the authority of Christ. Or I have the authority of me. And here this passage stands in our face and says, Christ is either Lord of life or he's not. And there's no middle. Why do we say that? How can we say that? How does that passage say this? Because we know as New Testament believers that through the triumph of the resurrection, which we've sung about multiple times this morning, through the triumph of the resurrection, Christ gains all authority. That's why he says in Matthew 28:18. He has all authority. All authority has been given unto him. Go therefore into all the nations. The authority of Christ through the triumph of the resurrection. And he must have all authority. And that's what you and I are going to bump up against the rest of today. Tomorrow. This week. Next week. Our pride is going to run up against the, the immovable brick wall. The eternally set before the foundation wall of the authority and required submission of Christ going to bump up against, well, our, 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 our desires are going to bump up against that authority. How am I going to use my money? It's going to bump up against the authority of Christ. What about my thought life? It's going to bump up against the authority of Christ. What about the words that are going to come out of my mouth this morning around the lunch table or on the drive home to my wife or to my children? That's going to bump up against the authority of Christ? Are you going to submit your tongue to the authority of Christ this afternoon? Well, see, all of our life, not just, not just saying it at church, all of our life continually has to come up against the authority of Christ. How about, how about the use of your time? That's the one I'm getting hit with right now. Will I submit all my time, all my time, Not just every waking, but every bit of time I have been given as grace. Will I submit it to the authority of Christ? This week I sat with a brother and heard testimony about a man in the community. uh, A man who I've been praying would come to salvation in Christ. A man who's hardened against the salvation of Christ. And the testimony went something like this. Christ is a good man. Christ is even our Savior, but God is not. God is bad. God is evil. You can see what the man did, can't you? He, he took the authority of Christ and sought to remove it from the relationship Christ the Son has with God the Father. We do this all the time. I like Christ as prophet and teacher, but don't let me deal with him as the Son of God. I like him as a man who heals a bunch of people and feeds 5,000. I'm not necessarily interested in full allegiance to him. The world does this all the time. Even us in our sin have done this. And yet the gospel clearly states that the eternal issue of man's sin is not with Christ. It's with an eternal, holy, perfect God. A lot of people like Christ, but God is. Is the one they have to deal with. God is their problem so to speak. And not many people like God. And yet. What do we have in scripture? God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. You see the issue a sinner has with God. Is resolved through meeting Jesus. Not as a good man. But as the son of man. As the son of God. Only as the Son of God sent out to love sinners like us, to save sinners like us from the wrath of God. And so what a, what a rotten sinner, which every sinner is rotten, what a rotten sinner needs more than anything is to meet the Son of God, is to meet Jesus. The, the transgender world. The rich, affluent world, the poor and needy, the drug addict, the sex addict, the entertainment addict, the family addict, the drunk, the workaholic. All of them, all of us, need to meet Jesus head on. And you know why? It's because when you meet Jesus, who he is, head on, you lose. And that losing is the sweetest victory anyone could ever gain. Anyone could ever know. Until we submit to the authority of Christ, we cannot know the sweetness of Christ, our Savior, or the sweetness of Christ as our friend. Well, I'm getting held on myself, so let's go to chapter 12, 1 through 12. Christ continues his conver- conversation with the uh, priests, scribes, and elders here in chapter 12. And point number two a parable for clarity. A parable for clarity. Christ is is still talking with them, and instead of just telling a story, he tells a story to help clarify what he's trying to teach them. And he tells this story through a word picture, too, in fact, to address the issue of authority. He tells this story of a vineyard, and he tells this story of a stone. You notice the parable of the vineyard. You notice the, the riches of a vineyard. I was thinking yesterday as I was walking, and I was kind of moving down the church road and you can see a lot of the valley. You know, Fredericksburg is a pretty good place to understand the work of a vineyard now. It wasn't so much so five or six, ten years ago. But when you're number two in the nation for wine production, you sort of get a picture of a vineyard. All these vineyards up and down 290. You know, most of them are not necessarily, I'm assuming, and I know some way this is true, they're not necessarily owned by the people that actually work it. They're owned by somebody somewhere else and they've got, Tenants, people, working those vineyards, and they take part of the profits, And that's what's going on here. You've got this man planting a vineyard, putting a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, built a tower, leased it to tenants, went to another country. And you've got these different pictures of people throughout this parable. And just by way of interpretation, the owner or the man who plants this vineyard is God. The servants that, these, that God sends, that this man sends to the tenants, are the prophets of old. The tenants in this picture are the religious leaders that he's speaking to. But by way of implication as well, Israel and Judah. Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord, is, of, the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The beloved son that ultimately the man sends is the beloved son, Christ. And so you see a picture here of God having planted the vineyard. God having chosen Israel and established them. God having uh, established his people. And you see this vineyard analogy that probably should take us back to the analogy just a few weeks ago of the fruit that God, Christ, is looking for at the fig tree. That was back in chapter 11, verse 12. Christ indicting then the people of Israel the people of God, Israel that day, for no fruit. And so one of the claims by those who like Christ as a teacher, but don't like God, is that God doesn't care about humanity. He's an evil God. Why would he allow all this suffering in the world if he's a loving God? He apparently does not care about humanity. And yet this passage here stands straight in our face and says, God does care about humanity. Look at the mercy of God here upon his people. When the season came, meaning the season of of being able to reap the fruits, I'm told that's anywhere from four to seven years for a good vineyard, he sent a servant to the tenants tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and therefore the man came and punished all the people and destroyed them. Is that what the text says? No. No. Would that, if you were the owner sitting somewhere and you sent someone to, to, to bring back to you the prophets and they did this, humbled, re, rejected your servant by way, your messenger to them, how would you respond? By at the very least, I'd fire every one of them. It's not what happens. He sends another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Surely that's enough, right? Come on now. No. And he sent another. And they killed him. And so he sent another and another and another. Some they beat and some they killed. And finally, verse 6, he had still one other. A beloved son. If anything, God does care about humanity. And he's crazy. Why would you send your beloved son. To someone you know. Is going to kill him. Hebrews 11. Reminds us of the many. That have come along to the people of Israel. And how they were treated. As God's messengers. And that would could be said of us even in our unsaved state that we have rejected Christ. But God being rich in mercy sent us his son. Mark chapter 1 verse 11, Mark chapter 9 verse 7, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Brothers and sisters, you sitting in the pew this morning have so much more than Daniel and Jeremiah or Isaiah or some of the other prophets. You've got the complete word of God sitting on your lap. You've got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ. You've got the testimony of thousands of years now, 2,000 plus years of church history, a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people all through God's love for you and sending a beloved son to be slain for you. Christ here is the final messenger sent to the people of Israel. There is is no other way to salvation other than through Christ. Because there's no other one behind him. If nothing else, this passage is a gavel of decision upon all other religions. It says that Muhammad and Gandhi and the Pope and cult leaders, the false preachers in the prosperity gospel. That claim to have some new revelation, some new vision from God. All are wrong because in Christ there is no other one needed to know father he is the beloved son so you can imagine the tension sitting there that day in the temple christ with the religious leaders around imagine the tension when he gets to verse 12 and you can see how they tells uh, verse 12 tells us that they understood clearly what christ was saying and they went him left him and went away Imagine the tension. I mean, you could drop, you, you could hear a pin drop when he gets to verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others have you not read this scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and everyone listening knew exactly what he was talking about and you and i read this verse that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and you and i read it with great hope but on that day when it was read It was not a verse of hope. It was a verse of indictment, of judgment, of condemnation. Psalm 118 is the first time we hear of this verse. We read it even this morning as our call to worship. And here it's repeated in Mark chapter 12. And it's repeated for Israel as an indictment, as a judgment against them. And yet for us, a verse of hope. Why? Verse 9 We are the others. We are the others that have been given this truth. Peter picks up this theme in 1 Peter 2. Just turn there with me. We're almost done. 1 Peter chapter 2. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter 2. Look with me there. Verse 4, as you come to him, who is the him? Christ, a living stone, there's our stone language back in Mark, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, and this is the language of chosen people, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame that's for us that's the that's the hope of christ for the nations but notice so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe here's the work of condemnation the stone that the builders rejected Israel has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The stone, the stone that Colossians says holds all things together, Christ. What a glory that that stone rejected has become the keystone to all of life for you and for me this morning. He's, he's what holds up everything together. You remove the cornerstone from a building, the whole thing comes down. Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, moved by God's hand of love from one that is rejected in the temple here in Mark chapter 11 to becoming the keystone of the spiritual temple of God, the keystone, the head of the church. Luke's gospel helps us here. Luke chapter 20, verse 18 speaking of the same scenario of Mark chapter 11 and 12 says what then is written the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. That is the the stone in Daniel 2 that is not uh, made by man, that comes and crushes. That is the stone spoken of here, Christ that comes through and judges rightly. And so we see in in this Daniel 2 and Luke 20 and Psalm 118 and 1 Peter 2, that Christ is the stone that either you stumble over and harden your heart and reject, or you bow the knee to. In full submission and allegiance. This morning we have heard from the word of God. And the question I think is very clear. Will you reject the stone or will you submit to the stone? Is Christ for you the stone that will crush in judgment for your sins. And rejection of him. Or is he the stone that is the rock of your salvation? If it's the latter, then you can say with the psalmist and in Mark 11, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We see that the religious leaders had the physical ability to see the miracles of Christ, but that did not cause them to believe. It is that which is the the marvelous work of God that gives us sight to behold Christ is lovely. And yet you also have the stone that will crush in judgment. You have the authority of Christ as judge. I trust we see the kindness and mercy of God, the love of God this morning, that he would send his only son. We think of John 3.16, even this morning. So will you lift your eyes of faith to the authority of Christ and bow the knee in submissive in submissive worship? Will you lift your eyes of faith to the authority of Christ and bow the knee in submissive worship? That's application for believer or unbeliever. The submission to Christ is the greatest thing anyone could ever bow the knee to. It's against every fiber of our being to see and submit to the authority of Christ. And yet, by God's marvelous doing and by His grace, we can bow to it. And we find great joy and great sweetness of life and fellowship with Christ to the power of His Spirit. I trust that this week, it might be said of us that we are those who bow the knee to Christ the King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We rejoice that Christ has been given. The keystone. He is the keystone of our lives. He is the. That which holds all things together. He is the rock of our salvation. He can never be moved. And therefore we cannot be for eternity as well for those of us who name the name of Christ. Father, if there is one among us that has not bowed the knee in submission to the authority of Christ, not has, has, not, has not come under the lordship of Christ in saving faith and repentance from their sins, I pray that you would give grace, that their heart would not be hardened to this truth, but would be drawn by your love and mercy and sending your beloved Son to save us. We thank you for your love for us. We're overwhelmed by it. We thank you for the, the, the family of God that you've given us in Christ. And as we now gather as the family around the table with you as the head, Christ as the head, We rejoice to be reminded of the work of Christ for us that has purchased our family membership. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.